Well, good morning. I've heard already probably three times, man, this is a hard lesson. <laughs> and you know, the funny thing about that is I actually got a choice, like maybe like three or four different choices of, of you know, a passage that I could choose to teach on, and I, for whatever reason, chose this one. So here we are. <laughs> Let's wrap this baby up. Uh, my name's Lynn Eriks. Uh, my husband, Doug, and I have been um, a part of this family for about 17 years, and I think probably about 12 of those I've been here at Habits. So I'm really humbled to be our last lecturer this morning, and I'm also really excited. Um, even though it was really hard, um, God surprises you, and you learn things that you never thought you would, because when you teach, you have to know it, right? You can't teach what you don't know. So bear with me as we go through this. Um, it's been several years since I last taught on a Wednesday morning, but it really is a genuine privilege, and it's, it's a privilege that's not lost on me. I, I'm really happy to be here, believe me. Um, if you would have told me like a year ago that I'd be here, I, I would not have believed you. Um, <laughs> I actually decided pretty much last minute that I was going to come this year um, to study and be at Habits. I had taken a few years off, and the reason was because of my job. And COVID had a lot of unintended um, benefits. And one of those was I was working from home. And so, you know what? I thought, I can shift my schedule. Maybe it'll work. I can just work earlier and work later, and I can have the freedom to come. And it worked out. It worked out. But I also asked for prayer from the prayer team to intercede on my behalf. And guess what? God was faithful to redeem my time. And, you know, we had a lot of obstacles this year with weather and delays and you know, police activity, and, um, but my job, my email, my phone calls never prevented me from being here, and I am, I am truly, truly so grateful. There's, there's nowhere I'd rather be. So before I go any further, would you pre please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as we read in your word in this passage, you are our rock. You're powerful, you're unchangeable. In you, we have stability, security, and strength. We're so grateful. Thank you for being David's rock, and thank you for being ours. God, please use my words this morning. Where impactful, let them be remembered. And where they're not, let them be forgotten. I pray our time together this morning will be honoring and pleasing to you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, our text for this morning covers the last four chapters of 2 Samuel, covering 21 through 24. And um, I kind of felt like it was all over the place, right? It's like Patty mentioned last week, this is not chronological. We have, we have ended our narrative. And so if you felt a little disjointed when you were reading it and didn't really understand you know, the progression of it, that's okay. And hopefully after today, it'll be a little bit uh, more clear. Um, so instead of handling um, chapter by chapter, I'm going out of order from how it appears in your Bible, and hopefully that's pretty clear from your outline. It tells you kind of the order, the order that we're going in. So um, we're going to start, though, with um, the events that are recorded. I'm going to make some observations, draw out some mini applications, um, and then we'll end with the best part, which is uh, David's song which is covered in chapter 22. And it really does reveal, as Don said, I'm excited to share with you who God is. And um, chapter 22 really draws that out. So we'll hopefully spend most of our time there. 
But first, we'll start with um, chapter 21. So the, the story that's recounted here for us is that Israel experienced a famine, and David, through divine revelation, realized that the famine is a punishment for a failed oath. After seeking the face of the Lord, God says to David in verse 21-1, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And you're like, well, what's this all about? Like, we haven't even talked about the Gibeonites and what failed oath and what's happening here. So the failed oath with the Gibeonites actually refers back to Joshua 9, which details how the Gibeonites tricked the Israelites into making an oath for their protection. So Joshua 9, verses 14 through 15 states, So the men, which is of Israel, took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's, that's a problem. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And then I'm going to drop down to verse 18 through 20. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. But Saul broke the oath and he killed some of the Gibeonites. Accordingly, just as it said in Joshua, wrath was upon them. And the wrath came in the form of the famine that we read about here in chapter 21. David sought atonement for Saul's sin in breaking the oath, and it was costly. It cost the lives of seven of Saul's sons. Notably, David spares Mephibosheth's life because of his oath to Jonathan. And we've seen that so many times, haven't we? He was faithful to that oath time and time again. We know this atonement in the form of the seven lives was satisfactory because in 2 Samuel 21, verse 14, it says, God responded to the plea for the land. So the famine was over. So I suggest to you that one of the main takeaways from this text is the fact that David sought the face of the Lord in this situation. That's straight out of the text in 21.1. Maybe that popped out to you also. There are, there are several implications from the fact that David sought the Lord. Obedient to the Lord's voice, David listened and acted on what the Lord told him. Even though we've watched as David has made some pretty terrible choices and sinned greatly, affecting his family and also for generations too, God was still with David. He never departed from him. Recall in 1 Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Without God, David could not have done this. There are other examples that remind us of the Lord's presence with David a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 18, verse 12, and also in verse 14, when the text tells us quite simply, the Lord was with him. That's a simple statement, right? But wow, what an impact. The Lord was with him. And because of this fact, and this fact alone, not because David was some great king or super king, it really should come as no surprise that David is also capable of making a good choice here. In this situation, he sought the face of the Lord. 
Also because the Lord was with him and didn't depart from him like he, like he did with Saul, David made it a, a, habit, a habit of seeking the Lord, particularly when he had a decision to make. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, and 5, uh, chapter 5, 19, the scripture tells us that David inquired of the Lord before going into any cities of Judah or going into battle with the Philistines. How different it would have been if David had not inquired after the Lord in those situations or sought his face. It makes me think about that line that I read to you in Joshua 9. Remember what it said when I said, oh, that's a problem? They did not ask counsel from the Lord, and that didn't turn out very well, did it? So I wonder if you've ever had a situation where you've inquired after the Lord, like David. Maybe you've had a decision to make, and you sought the Lord's face. I've recently been walking through a, I would say, hard time with my employer, and I had to make a decision to make, um, well, I'm just going to briefly share with you this story as an example of inquiring after the Lord. So remember earlier at the beginning I told you I wasn't even sure if I'd be here and work and I didn't know how that was going to be? Well, several months ago my boss informed me that my department would be restructuring and that new positions were going to be added to meet increased demands of our little group of seven who counsel and service over 700 lawyers across the firm. So the restructuring plan took my 75% capacity part-time job and changed it into a full-time job. So the decision that I had to make was, would I go full-time? And I had to think about that, and I had to ask God about that and seek his counsel, and I really wrestled with that. Um, the financial decision would be yes. The career-oriented decision would be yes. But I knew that if I said yes to that, I'd say no to many other aspects of my life. And so I said no. And I said, but could you maybe work this part-time thing that we agreed to into this restructuring plan? And the answer was, well, I don't know. I'll have to think about that and get back to you. And so I waited, and 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 I waited. Several months I waited. And so it was during that time of waiting after about, I think about, pardon me, I think about two months had gone by, and I decided to take my dog for a walk during lunch. So I do this often, and when I walk my dog, I usually walk alone, and um, I usually do it quietly. I don't, you know, have earbuds in or listen to music or podcasts or anything like that, but I do pray. Um, and I am not kidding you, during that walk, I just felt a peace, and I felt God saying, it's time, this is good, this is good. So when I got back to my desk after the walk, I had an email from my boss, and she asked to do a Zoom call, which we had, like 30 minutes after that. And she said, the answer's no. The answer's no. You have to go full-time. So it was like an all-or-nothing thing. So my last day was Friday, last week. So the point of me telling you all of this is not that there's like some super tidy, happy ending, but that the Lord taught me through this situation that I have to seek him, know my limits, and um, that I can trust that whatever it is that he has for me next, it's for my good and it's for his glory. You don't seek after someone or inquire after someone if you do not trust that person. Who better to trust for your counsel than the Lord Jesus? 
He is, after all, described as a wonderful counselor. That's from Isaiah 9-6. So trusting the Lord segues into our next chapter, which is 24. So chapter 24 deals with the census and the plague, and they kind of lead right into each other. So first, the census. This was a very normal event to number your people for a military assessment, uh, for the purpose of a military assessment, but it was this super normal event that God used as an impetus to show David his lack of trust in the Lord. Hadn't it been the Lord who had shielded David from his oppressors and his enemies? Hadn't the Lord been the one who had provided victories for Israel? But instead of trusting God with his army, David instructs Joab to go and number the people so that he can figure out the strength of his army. Interestingly, in the text, in chapter 24, uh, verse 1 to 2, it tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, little h he, incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Commentators state that the little h in he, when saying that he incited David, likely meant that God allowed Satan to drive David to take a census. But it's David's lack of trust in the Lord's protection and sovereignty that results in a plague. So we began our passage for this week with famine. And now we're in a plague. Super great times. So just as the famine was the result of sin, breaking the oath, the sin of the breaking the oath, um, the plague is also the outcome of sin. But this time it's not Saul's sin, it's David's sin. So in 2 Samuel 24, 1, it says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I love that God records this part for us because it shows David's heart. Even though he lacked trust and he acted foolishly, he's still able to see his own sin and take responsibility for it. Why? Because God was with him, and he never departed from him. So through a seer Gad, the Lord provides three choices for David's own punishment. Famine, pursuit, and death by his enemies, or pestilence, which is a plague. And I thought that was kind of funny. It's like a father saying, well, choose your own punishment. You know, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book or something. But David's no fool, and he chooses the option that is most merciful, right? God. He says in verse 14, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. He knows God's mercy. He's experienced it. He's lived it. So he chooses that wisely. But it wasn't a light punishment. The Lord's angel exacted it, and the text tells us 70,000 men from Dan to Beersheba were killed. And just as the Lord, or the angel of the Lord was about to destroy the city of Jerusalem, the Lord relented, it says, and prevented the destruction of the city. David realizes the magnitude of his own sin, and he asks for the people, his sheep, to be spared. It's then that Gad the seer then instructs David to go build an altar on the threshing floor of a Jebusite who currently owns the land. The threshing floor is an agricultural location. I tried to find a nice little picture to show you, but it's really like super plain, and it's just, 
It's a place where grain is separated from the chaff, and usually it was high in elevation so that the winds would blow the chaff away, and it just made it easier that way. David ends up buying the land from the Jebusite, but not before there's this like back and forth between the two of them about whether the Jebusite's just going to give it to him, and David's like, no, i got to pay for it, and... Um, and so that's kind of strange. So there was actually a question in our lesson about this, and I was thinking about that. Why does David pay for it when he could have it for free? But I think it shows that David values this land and deems it costly. He must purchase it to show that its true worth, cost, value. The land is treasured. I submit to you that this small fact of David purchasing the land, which by the way, is where the temple will be built by his son Solomon in the future, and where David obeys the Lord, builds an altar, and offers a sacrifice, is symbolic of the sacrifice, the very costly sacrifice that the future king will make on our behalf, Jesus, in his own life for us. Because we, like this land, are costly or valuable or treasured. It's yet another way that David is a type of Christ, pointing towards the future king who will come. Additionally, this, shows, this story shows us that David, even though flawed and sinful, still has the Lord with him. I'm going to say that a lot today. The Lord is relenting and being merciful to David and his household, and he'll honor the covenant he made with David and his household. His line and his kingdom will continue, for it's the Lord's will. God's character is on display in the form of holiness, his justice, his mercy, and his sovereignty, just to name a few. So now I want to turn your attention to the last part of chapter 21, in the middle to the end of chapter 23. I want to cover these parts briefly, so I have enough time to cover the final section of our text. So both chapter 21, verses 15 through 22, and chapter 23, verses 8 through 39, cover David's servants, helpers, mighty men, warriors. So it'd be really fun for me to try to pronounce all of these names, but I'm not going to read them. Um, I just want to make a few comments about this passage. Because there was often war again, which the text repeats four times in that first part, there were often great warriors in David's charge who prevailed over their enemies. I think this really emphasizes that David didn't fight his battles alone because, again, the Lord was with him, but also he had men alongside him who were instruments of the Lord's. The Lord recorded the names in detail of each of David's mighty men, many for whom more descriptors were provided, including heritage and specific actions that each man took to accomplish the Lord's will. Why does God provide us with this sort of detail? He doesn't leave these warriors to be faceless and forgotten, but instead he esteems them by recording their names for all of history, especially Uriah the Hittite. He's the last one in the list, right? Maybe it's because we often remember the first and the last in a list. He honored his memory despite his demise at the hand of David. So I said I was going to talk about that briefly, and that's truly it. That's all I'm going to say about that passage. <laughs> and now I want to move on to the last section today. So this is covering chapter 22, and then the first seven verses of chapter 23. I can think of no better topic to end our study 
both of this particular passage for this week and our entire study of 2 Samuel than on the character of God. For as many lessons as we've had during our time in 2 Samuel that felt more focused on David, his life, and that narrative, it feels really good to focus on God, what he has done. In David's song recorded in 2 Samuel 22 for us, we see the overflowing of David's love for God and gratefulness to God because of his deliverance from his enemies over and over again. It's because of this deliverance that David refers to God as his deliverer, but also his fortress, shield, refuge, stronghold, savior, rock. Inherent in all of those titles are other attributes of God. He is a provider. He is loving. He is steadfast. And he is a sustainer. As you think back on all the experiences that David has had that we have studied, even before he was king, you can see how those experiences shaped David's understanding of who God is. Stated otherwise, the books of First and Second Samuel give us examples of how God specifically was each of those titles to David. Something I learned when I was studying for this teaching was the similarity between David's song here and Hannah's prayer in First Samuel chapter 2 in the first 10 verses. Hannah's prayer in the beginning of First Samuel 2 and David's song in Second Samuel 22 act as bookends for us. We start with who God is, and we end with who God is. And all that's in between shows us how God is true to who he is throughout the lives of David, his family, and from Dan to Beersheba. Specifically, when we compare Hannah's prayer with David's song, we see several parallel descriptions of who God is, and these are detailed in your handout for you with the common theme and the verse from each passage. It was a fun um, parallel to make, and it shouldn't be surprising that it's parallel because the prayer and the song are about God, and God is God. He is always the same. Another interesting thing that I learned when studying this song is that while David's words in chapter 22 are personal to him, they are also the words that were used to create a public or corporate song for the people of Israel to worship the Lord, and that is Psalm 18. I don't have time to read Psalm 18 because it is quite long and compare uh, you know, chapter 22 with you now, but when you have time, go back and see how truly similar they are. Now, having considered David's song, I want us to think more broadly about this concept of God's character. So this year has been a study on First and Second Samuel, but really, really, it's been a study on the character of God. And it kind of is every year you study, right? So when someone asks you what you've studied this past year, and you say First and Second Samuel, you could say, it was a study on the character of God, and you'd be right. <laughs> I think that's probably why the authors of our study included the question on the last page of every lesson, which you may not have even gotten to because you had 30 questions each week to answer. But the last question says, what aspect of God's character has this week's passage of 2 Samuel shown you more clearly? 
If you were here on one of the weeks that I greeted you, like Don greeted us today, I challenge you to look back on the last page of each lesson to see what attribute you'd written down. For me, and I told you this, <laughs> I often put sovereign. It's jumped out to me over and over. And I find that sort of funny because the title of this week's lesson is God's Sovereign Ways. So what does it mean when we say God's sovereignty? Simply, it is God's exercise of power over his creation. The definition in the back of our study guide says, God does everything according to his plan and his pleasure. He controls all things. We've seen this time and time again in our study of 2 Samuel, haven't we? So why do we study God's character? If someone asks you, why do you or why should you study God's character? Well, there are probably a million different reasons, and we'd never get to the end of them, but I'm just going to suggest a few in no particular order of importance, truly. First, studying who God is, his attributes, or his character intensifies, increases, or strengthens our faith. Don't we all want a strengthened faith? For the unbeliever, studying God's character could spur on faith in God to be a saving, transforming faith transforming the unbeliever into a forever believer. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Attributes of God, Deeper into the Father's Heart. He says, we wonder why we don't have faith. The answer is, faith is confidence in the character of God. And if we don't know what kind of God God is, we can't have faith. Faith always has an object, doesn't it? Faith isn't something we can muster up on our own. It is Christ who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's from Hebrews 12 too. In addition to increasing or solidifying your faith, studying God's character enables us to better discern his will. Because God's will always conforms to his character. He cannot do anything contrary to his own character. So we must know his character to know his will. And when we know his will, because we've studied it, our fellowship with him is much sweeter. It makes me think of 1 John 2.17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Third, you can understand better the world by understanding the God who created it. Wayne Grudem says in his book, Systematic Theology, and book doesn't seem like the right word because it's like this thick, as we learn about God's character from Scripture, it should open our eyes and enable us to interpret creation rightly. As a result, we will be able to see reflections of the excellence of God's character everywhere in creation. The whole earth is full of his glory. From Isaiah 6.3. So we can understand creation better when we understand our creator. And that includes you. You're his creation. You are an image bearer of Christ. So you can answer really deep philosophical questions like, who am I? Why am I here? By studying who God is. In other words, you can gain insight into knowing yourself when you consider who you are in Christ. 2 Samuel 22, verse 20, brings this truth to home. It says, He brought me out into the broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He takes great delight in you. Isn't that great? 
That's true, even if you're feeling less than delightful. God takes delight in you even if and in spite of all your sin and your circumstances. Fourth and finally, studying God's character. It allows you to love him more fully and more intimately because the heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. As you seek to know him more fully in his word and in prayer, you fall deeper in love with this God who created you. The good news is you'll never plumb the depths of knowing God. He's incomprehensible to our finite human minds. And so, I sure hope to see you again in September when we begin a new study. And guess what? We'll study who God is through a different study. In closing, I want to suggest to you a small practice that I am in the habit of doing with any study that I um, complete. On the inside cover of a book or a study that I do with any group like this, I write down the dates that I did the study, the people that I did it with or my leader, and my takeaways, my main things, as a summary, if you will, of what I've learned during that study. And that's been really fun to do because you can take it off the shelf later and you're taken back to a point in your life that you may have not thought about for a while or that you had forgotten about or just forgot what you saw in that time. So I wanted to share with you an example that I did, and this is truly an example. And what's beautiful about this is that um, as many women that are here today, we might have that many different things written down. But so mine's, mine's literally written down already because this is the last lesson, but Becky Baker was my leader this year. And I wrote down, David was deeply flawed, and yet he inquired after the Lord. He sought the Lord's face. face. He recognized his own sin and sought the Lord's forgiveness. All that was possible because God's spirit rushed upon David and did not depart. It was the Lord's sovereign way and plan. He is sovereign and can be trusted. So it'll be fun for me to go back to March 2022, some point in the future, and read those truths back to myself that I've learned. So I challenge you, later today or in the next few days, but don't wait too long, to write down what are your takeaways? What has God shown you this year? What have you seen in his character that has been made known to you? These were hard passages. Studying First and Second Samuel was no joke. It was rough, but in it, God's character was there all the time. I pray that you have a wonderful discussion in your group today. And Don, do you have any announcements that you want to go over? Thank you.